Hello everyone, welcome to episode 903 of Cold Wave Soundcheck. I'm Aaron Pollock. Cold Waves has returned for 2021 in Chicago, kicking off Thursday, September 23rd, and running through Sunday the 26th at Metro, Smart Bar, and G-Man. Cold Waves is a celebration of Chicago's relationship with industrial music, the memory of a fallen brother, and a fundraiser for suicide prevention charities. For more information, including the full lineup and ticket links, head to coldwaves.net. This week, we're chatting with Sunday Night Metro headliner Chris Hall. This is Stabbing Westward.
five years ago, I spoke with Walt in advance of your return at Double Door when you were celebrating your 30th anniversary. So I guess that means this year's our 35th anniversary. So we went through the whole 30 years. So I really wanted to start with that night. Yeah, so we had played Double Door, I don't know, three or four months earlier. We had done it as The Dreaming, my other band. Mark, who I hadn't spoken to for ages and ages, who was uh, the guitar player who toured with us on the Wither album and played on the Darkest Days album and toured with us for Darkest Days. He lived in Chicago, and him and Walter had been sort of friends. And so um, I had asked Walter to invite him to get on stage and play some stabbing songs with us because um, the Dreaming played, I don't know, six or seven stabbing songs during our regular set just because I realized that no matter how much I liked the new music I was writing, that the fans just wanted to hear, what do I have to do and save yourself? So just give them what they want. So we were doing that. And then we had Mark get up and play it just kind of for fun at this Double Door show. And um, it it went really well. I mean, the guy is like, he knows those songs so well. He played them a thousand times. And they just sounded right. When we played them as The Dreaming, they sounded cool, but they didn't sound exactly correct, you know. And, and Mark just brought this flavor to it. It was like, wow, this actually sounds like Stabbing Westwood. So Jason, I think, saw that. And he he suggested that we get up and do this show um, at the Double Door. Up until that point, we were sort of running under the assumption that we would never really get to ever play at Stabbing Westwood again. And then um, Jason was just like, why not? Just do it. So we're like, so we went ahead and did it and nobody complained. And then we went back to the Dreaming. Then somebody else called and said, oh, I've got a big Halloween festival in Philly. Do you want to uh, do that one? And like, uh, now it's turning into actually playing shows. But um, that night in Double Door was amazing because it's kind of hometown. Um, even though I've technically lived in Chicago, less time than I've lived in L.A. at this point. But um, still, it's where the band is from. And it definitely had this hometown flavor to it. It was ridiculously sold out. Like I couldn't even get from the dressing room downstairs through the crowd to the stage. Um, and then I found out later that there's a door that goes back there, but no one actually told me that. I didn't have to walk through up the stairs and through the crowd. But um, it was cool. I mean, we hadn't sung a lot of those songs for 20 years. I hadn't heard a lot of those songs for 20 years. So I had to go back and actually listen to them and learn them again and go, oh, yeah, I remember how this goes. But it was fun. The energy in the room is insane. I think everyone in the audience was so kind of happy to have it happening and it felt like such a celestial you know once in a lifetime event um that just no matter how sloppy or weird it sounded they were just like so excited the crowd and they sang louder than i did which helped a lot but it was a it was pretty awesome it it created the the sort of energy that was needed to convince me to stop doing my own project and shift back to that. Because everyone else in the band was like, why don't we just be stabbing westward? They make a lot more money and have a lot more fans. And I'm like, no, we're doing this new music and it's independent and authentic. And yeah, it's hard hard to convince guys to play for 100 bucks a night when they can be playing for a lot more. 
And then you guys came back the next year and you and you headlined Metro proper. Well, the, the Metro is always the kind of, for me, was like the mecca of uh, the Chicago music scene back in the late 80s, 90s. Before, before Stepping got big, all we ever wanted to do was play the Metro. We played the Avalon a lot, which was this like small upstairs club, the old boy Belmont, kind of just up the street from the alley. Um, right by the L, right by the train. And we used to play up there all the time. We would get weekend nights. We shared the stage with Smashing Pumpkins at least a dozen times during those early days. Taking turns headlining, it would depend on who would pass out the most flyers or staple them to the most poles that week or whatever. The dream was always to get into the Metro and play the Metro. And I think before we got signed, we got to play there once or twice on like a Wednesday or something like that. Um, so anytime that we played the Metro, even when the band was, you know, getting bigger, was awesome. Even though as we went on to like, you know, open for Depeche Mode and tour and stuff like that, we played, you know, Red Rocks in, in Colorado. It's like one of the most beautiful venues in the world. There's like a bunch of places we played that were amazing, but there's just something about the Metro and that mystique of like it just being out of reach when you're young and like trying so hard to get a gig um so when we went back there and sold it out i'm like wow this place still smells exactly the same and the stage seemed smaller in an odd way i always remembered it being just huge and then we went back and it felt really like much more intimate which was cool because the crowd was right there and and you can it's this old building on the second or third floor and so you can literally feel the entire floor moving when you play a song like Save Yourself and they start jumping, you can like, oh, is this thing going to collapse down into the lobby? But it, it feels really good. It's just got this like super, super old energy and vibe to it that you can't really capture, in my opinion, anywhere else. Red Rocks is still on my list. I tried to get there last year for my 40th birthday as one of my as like my getaway trip and then COVID messed that up. So I'm still, uh, I'm every, every week I'm getting their newsletter as they're booking new shows. And I'm like, all right, uh, whether it's a year later or two years later, I'm, I'm going to get there. It's a hard place to see a band because it's hard for the bands because they can't breathe. It's like every band is like every singer is running to the side of the stage and sucking on an oxygen tank or passing out or whatever. We did a, we did the sex pistols there. And then we did um, a festival there with like, the Offspring and Foo Fighters and a bunch of bands like that. But the the um, the show we did there with the Sex Pistols will be one of the the highlights of my life for sure. So recently, you put out the uh, the Hollowed Hymns EP with some covered tracks. I know um, you had the Cure cover, which which we, you put on the uh, the Cold Waves compilation from last year. Tell me about the the inspiration to put those together because I feel like those are those are pretty iconic and and if you're gonna do those like the pressure's on you and I I thought you really nailed all of them. Thanks. Yeah, it was pretty scary when we did the Cure song. It was fun. I just was listening to Spotify and I heard it, and Jason had asked if we had a track that we wanted to to donate, and we were sort of in the middle of putting together this new record, but we had already released three tracks from what would become the album on an EP earlier that year. And so the idea of releasing another track from the album, we didn't have like 40 tracks to choose from. We had literally 10. <laughs> and um, the idea of leaking yet another one, I'm like, oh God, that's gonna be like half an album 
like given away before the album like you know is even done so i thought i said well why don't we do a cover and oddly enough stabbing westward has had this um weird history of like being anti-cover i don't know why uh i do know why andy the drummer said he would never play a cover and it was because his old band exotic birds did a cover of like a deep purple song or some, something. I can't remember what it was. It was like a seventies kind of rock track that they redid as like an erasure type cover. And it got radio play in Cleveland and in Ohio. He was known as the band that played that song, kind of the orgy blue Monday syndrome. And so they were like, Oh, we don't want to be like that. I'm like, no, I'd have to say Orgy's not really hurting. <laughs> They're doing pretty good. They have a platinum record, sell a lot of tickets, everyone likes them. I'm like, I don't see it as being a negative. I mean, they, they took us an already good song and they made it completely different. I, I say it's actually better, but they made it, you know, they made it their own and, and a generation of kids who had never heard it reacted to it. And it, it got them notoriety in everyone in the nineties. I mean, from you know, uh, Limp Biscuit made their career on doing covers and that metal band from Chicago Disturbed, they did the same thing. Like all these bands were doing, you know, big anthemic covers from the 80s. And we were just like anti-cover, you know, almost to the bitter end. And then at the very, very last, like dying breath of our career, not another teen movie asked us if we would cover a song for the movie. And they finally said yes. And then to my just absolute horror, the, um, I don't know if it was the movie that chose the Bizarre Love Triangle or the band but of all the new order songs that was just absolutely the worst new order choice in my opinion just so happy but um so i i talked walter into doing the the cure cover for jason i kind of piloted that one through the process in my studio and then um we sent it over and then our label was saying i wish we had something that could tie us over until the record can come out through covid just something we could give people I said, well, why don't we go ahead and do something with, you know, he's already used it. He's already done the the, the Cold Wave thing. I'm like, why don't we do something with that? And and then it's like, well, maybe we could put a couple of album tracks as a B-side. I'm like, well, then we're exactly in the same situation we're in Cold Wave. You're giving away half the album. So why don't we, if you really need a B-side, why don't we do, um, you know, another cover? And then, oh, and then we're just doing and it got into this whole big thing. And then um, we decided to do a Halloween-themed one, and obviously the ministry track was one of the most obvious choices to make. But how, as a Chicago pseudo-industrial band, do you have the balls to cover ministry? That's like, (laughs) he's like, in my opinion, the godfather of Chicago industrial music. So that that was super, super scary. Um, Our publicist is also Al's publicist, and she said that he was cool with it, and was excited to hear it. So um, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. And, and nothing bad happens. So, I mean, I haven't been hexed or anything. So I think we're okay.
I also noticed that the album uses the the iconic font for the band that you used for Wither Blister, which, which to me it's it's just super iconic. Was there like a purpose or intent behind going back to that again? Because it, it seemed like for most of your albums, you, you sort of went with a different style each time. Yeah, they jump from font to font, from album to album, which I always thought was a bad idea. Nine Inch Nails always had that iconic N-I-N in a simple rectangle. It was so recognizable on a car sticker or a t-shirt or whatever. And I just thought, you've already got a name that is hard to say, hard to remember, stabbing, stumping Westwood. Like people thought it was a subdivision and like a rancho, you know, community. So it was already a hard name to remember. And then you do these like super fancy kind of trendy fonts and it's hard to read. It's like those Norwegian black metal bands where you're like, I don't know what that says. It's a word misspelled with a lot of thorns. I'm not quite sure exactly, you know, it was that kind of a thing. And I thought the one that we used on Wither was the the best logo we ever had. And it was designed by my friend Jim Marcus from Warsaw, a Chicago guy. So I liked the fact that it, it tied into that. And I'd seen a ton of tattoos with that. But I'd also seen that we have a sort of a dagger, an SW with a dagger through it that I've seen a lot of tattoos with as well. So yeah, we just kind of wanted to tie tie in, and it, and it was super super last minute, so it's easier to use an old logo than to design a new one. I think on the new I think on the new album artwork they did a new logo. That's cool. I never knew that Jim Marcus did that font. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's crazy is that he then sold that font after we used it for a year. He sold it, and if you go to Costco, there's um, a shampoo that uses that font. That's like shea moisturizer shampoo and i bought it and so the the s in shea is the s from the stabbing westward and then the the moisturizer the m is the w flipped upside down so every time i'm in the shower there's like this like s and m w thing look it up and it makes me giggle every time i keep thinking i should take a picture of that but then i'm in the shower so covid you know really fucked up everyone's plans for the last 15 months so tell me about how it you know, affected the band and affected you personally? I loved it. I, th- I thought it was amazing. Our, our, we live in Redondo Beach and it got so quiet. There's like no traffic. Our kids were riding their bikes in the street. It didn't really affect me at all because I don't really do much. I just um, take care of my boys and then hang out in my studio and write music all day, walk my dog. That's pretty much my life. I had to get a Peloton instead of going to the gym. So that was cool. I didn't, it made it easier to work out. So I actually lost weight. We'd already stocked up on toilet paper just accidentally. So we were fine in that department and we were good. And then around uh, halfway through the year in the spring, we realized it's not going away. My wife's in um, the medical field. So she's like, yeah, this isn't going to go away. So we ended up spending um, a good portion of COVID in Maui um, because our kids were able to do Zoom remote and she was able to do her work remote. And I don't really do anything. So we went over to Maui and hung out for most of the spring and summer and then the holidays this last year. And then we finally had to come back when in school started back up in February in Redondo. We had to come back to California. So for, for us, it was kind of this wonderful pause button that we actually all liked. But I know a lot of people were hurting and struggling and stuff. And it was hard, like on Carl, Carlton, our guitar player, all he does is tour. So he's in, he's in Stabbing Westward, Orgy, Berlin. Uh, and between those three bands, he played 
nearly every weekend. We would have to plan ahead to get him for, for stabbing shows. And um, he had a hard year. He didn't get to play any shows. And he got to play one drive-in show with Berlin and said it was the most bizarre thing in the world because it was in a mall parking lot and cars were parked really far away. And instead of applause, they would honk their horns and flash their lights and <laughs> like just thought it was just so odd and not fun at all. So he's excited to get back on stage, but he said he has to remember how to play standing up because he's been sitting down for a year and a half. <laughs> like, I don't even know where my guitar is. I mean, that's the other thing is when we, our first show is in September and we haven't played. Our last show was in January of 2020. We opened for Bush in Vegas and that was like just a one-off show and that we didn't know at the time that it was probably a week and a half before, two weeks before things started shutting down and getting weird. So yeah, that was. It's going to be almost like a, a year and eight months since we've we've played, and we won't really get a rehearsal because uh, Walter lives in Chicago, so the three of us will probably get together, me and the drummer and the guitar player, and try and run through the songs, and I'll hum, you know, the lead line, and what do I have to do so we don't get lost and whatnot. But yeah, when we get on stage uh, that week, that weekend, it's going to be uh, the first show in a while going to be interesting just just from a, a merch point of view because i know that you know when everyone comes to cold waves and and especially me you know the first thing i do once the doors open is run over to the merch area and i noticed that all your new stuff is just selling out instantly i can't even tell you how much ewo jesus is going for on on discogs right now well, i should print some more <laughs> i was gonna say are, are there any plans to, to get more of those out there so that anyone coming out in september can get some of the newer stuff I, I hadn't even thought about it. I just did a one-time pressing of that, and it was so much work. Um, I, I, I did all the artwork myself and did all the stuff here and then sent it. It got sent to Prague, I think, to get printed in Prague. Or, yeah, so not, yeah, somewhere over there, and it took like three or four months to get back, and then I got them, and I thought, well, I wonder if anyone's going to buy these, and then they sold out in like an hour and a half, and I had 500 that I had to ship. And so then I had to like ship all these records, which are really big. And then I had to figure out the best way to do it and buy all these boxes. And then the same thing happened when we did the Dead and Gone EP. I did um, 2,500 of those. And then I ended up having to ship them all myself out of my house. And um, that's when I'm like, you know what? We got to get a record deal. Even if it's like a small indie, because I can't. Walter's like, I think this is working out really great. I'm like, yeah, because you're getting $4 a record, but you're not like sitting and like copying and pasting addresses onto labels and printing them and sticking it on an envelope and then putting a CD in and double checking you put the right number of CDs and double checking the label and then putting it in a box and having to carry those boxes to the post office and like for three weeks straight. So, and then having to field the complaints. I just ordered my CD and it's not here yet. That's all I have for you. I know we're at the, the 30 minute mark. Was there anything that I missed that you wanted to go over or mention? I built a really, really awesome uh, synth studio in my house during COVID. That was the other thing I did. I've been collecting synths. That sounds like a like a black hole of a hobby that, that is very dangerous to go down. It's a very, very expensive. <laughs> and, it, and it never ends. It's like, oh, I, I got like, I'm looking at uh, sequential profits. Profit 5, a Sequential Pro 3, a Roland Jupiter, and a Hydrosynth. And I just got an Electron Digitac, which is like this really cool sampling drum machine. And um, then I need a little keyboard for that. And then I need a little delay 
reverb pedal to go with everything else. And then I heard some people doing some cool stuff with cassette tape loops. So I got this cool cassette player that you can slow down and speed up. And then I got this crazy little oscillator thing with a glass tube that works like a theremin that I could feed into the tape loop to make tape loops that I feed into the electron digitac. And um, yeah, so, but I, I do remixes for people and I use that money to sink into my black hole.
On this episode, you heard Plastic Jesus, a cover of The Cure is Burn, and Home in You. Stabbing Westward can be found at stabbingwestward.com. Our opening music is Euthanasia by Accumination. Our closing music is Messiah by Splinter Group. Subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Join us next week as we chat with Dean and Denim from Odonis Odonis. Our closing segment each week is dedicated to the inspiration for Cold Waves, Jamie Duffy. Here is Kevin Leonard sharing one of his memories. I don't have any one specific story about Jamie, just that he was one solid dude. I remember first meeting him and Jason and everybody else as just the biggest music nerd, asking them all these random questions about B-sides that had come out like 15 years earlier, and everybody just welcoming me into the family. He was just such an extremely busy guy all the time, but he still managed to make time for anyone that ever needed it from him. I mentioned that I was interested in learning to run live sound, and the next time I saw him, he brought me the book he learned from and offered to let me hang out in the booth and watch him. Uh, I just offhandedly mentioned once that an Acumen shirt I had uh, had a misprint on it, and the next time I saw him, he had one from his own collection for me. He was just an awesome guy. Uh, it was just not a live show in Chicago without seeing him either behind the soundboard or frantically running from one end of the venue to the other with some kind of cable in his hand. Uh, I still catch myself looking around for him from time to time when I'm at a concert.